Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files, Facebook's head of global advertising, Carolyn Everson, says she's still often the only woman in many meetings. Today, a mere 26% of all tech jobs are held by women. That's according to the National Center for Women in Technology. So how do we attract and retain more women in those high-paying tech jobs? Also this, why she says the next billion people to get online are going to be mobile only. I spoke with her at the Fortune Most Powerful Women Summit in October. You said something in another interview that really struck me. You said... We need to weigh the strength of our people, not our product, as our most important asset. And you even went as far as to say you believe at some point down the road, Wall Street will not just measure numbers and financial earnings, but they will actually measure the health and happiness of our employees. Seriously? I'm incredibly passionate about this topic. I think that, you know, the the best quote that I have around this is Peter Drucker, where he says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And even at this Fortune conference that I'm at, every conversation from every CEO comes down to people, comes down to the quality of the people they have around them, the team environment, and who is going to be in the trenches at 2 o'clock in the morning when things are rough. And so if you think about people as your most important asset, then how companies invest and take care of them and care about their overall health, their physical, emotional, spiritual, and mental, I think is increasingly going to be very important in the quality of companies. But so, how is Wall Street going to measure that and how are we going to get them to care? How are you going to get them to care about that? Well, the, there's already some great statistics that companies that have the top 10% of employees in terms of happiness outperform their peers by 15.5% in the S&P 500. And that's just based on data from pulse surveys where people, companies check in with their employees and understand their happiness. But what I would love to see someday is on the Bloomberg terminal, as investors are making decisions, we not only look at the P&L and the basic balance sheets of companies, but we look at things like gender diversity, which Bloomberg is already moving towards, and also the health of the employee culture, which I think is going to be a very important differentiator for companies going forward. It'll be fascinating to see if that happens, if there is an evolution there. Let's talk about the business. Let's talk about the mobile business. More than $1.7 billion users on Facebook each month, 1.1 billion a day, more than 90% of your users on mobile. You've said, Carolyn, that mobile is the most profound change that we've seen in the business. You call it the fourth industrial revolution. Are, are you looking at a day when potentially Facebook is used exclusively on mobile? What we see in terms of mobile usage is it's by far and away the dominant use case. And if Facebook were starting today, we would have started as a mobile company. One of our biggest themes that we talk about is not only the shift of Facebook going on mobile, but actually becoming of mobile, which means taking advantage of the unique things that actually can only happen on a mobile environment. And you're going to continue to see us explore with camera and location opportunities, which are very unique to the actual mobile environment. Instagram was started as a mobile-only company. 
the next billion consumers that are going to come online are going to be on mobile only. Will it ever be exclusively mobile? We think there'll always be some desktop usage, particularly in the developed markets that have desktops and work environments where people are accessing Facebook and Instagram and other forms of, of media. But the new emerging markets are absolutely going to come on in a mobile way. You run the ad business, which is ginormous. I, if there was a word that could express how big bigger than ginormous is, I would use that word. Um, mobile is where 84%, right, of Facebook's ad revenue comes from now. Let's like let's rewind to 2012 because I remember the day vividly. It was the first uh, earnings mm -hmm. report after Facebook went public. Shares were tanking. Stock fell to $22 a share. Today it's in the mid one 120s. Market flipped out. I was live on television talking about it. How did you turn the ship around? Because the concern was mobile. Well, do they have a mobile strategy? What you know? And and it was incumbent on you guys to turn it around, and you did it, and you did it quickly. How? It was the most amazing thing to be part of because literally Mark pivoted the company within weeks. Yes. He held in all hands and talked about the fact that the lines had crossed. Those lines were the amount of consumers accessing Facebook on their mobile device versus desktop. And while you would expect that in developing countries like India and Southeast Asia, right. these lines crossed in Western Europe and the United States. And it was an alarm bell inside of Facebook that we needed to rethink all of our strategies. We rebuilt all of our mobile apps because they were built in HTML5. Like so in a whole new operating system. Brand new. We had to create a native iOS, native Android apps. Every engineer had to be retrained on mobile. And we focused primarily on the consumer experience because prior to 2012, our experience on mobile wasn't great and it wasn't native. And so we had to get the consumer experience right. Once we understood that and really improved, dramatically improved that experience, we then started to understand how could we put marketing and advertising into the newsfeed experience, make it organic, make it feel like content from family and friends. And the entire model moved from sort of the desktop right-hand side you know, literally banner environment, if, if, if you could call it that, into native mobile mm -hmm. experiences that drove real business results. And, you know, the rest of, over the last three years, we've built up to now the dominant share of our advertising is in mobile. What is the lesson learned from that? Because, I mean, luckily, you guys were able to turn it around quickly because the market can be unforgiving, right? Um, especially when you're public and you're, yes. you're up against the wall on quarterly <laughs> earnings. What's the lesson learned from it for the next time, whatever the next lines are, cross? Well, the real lesson is successful companies are often the hardest to change. And in this state of disruption, you are constantly in a mode of having to innovate, having to constantly evolve. And the fact is the consumers have huge expectations today. They expect things to be immediate. They expect to be able to access all of their information. And they are pushing our thinking on our product evolution faster than sometimes we are. But you need to have a culture that is not afraid to take risks, mm -hmm. that is bold, that understands failure is definitely a part of the strategy because we have to learn and evolve. And it really comes from the top. Even when Mark held that all hands and declared we needed to be a mobile first, a mobile best company, it wasn't like the culture changed instantaneously. Mm -hmm. It was not until one product engineer walked in with a desktop mock-up into his conference room right after the all hands. And Mark said, did you not hear the fact that I had asked everybody to be mobile first, mobile best? The meeting ended, that story spread, and no one wanted to see Mark until they actually had thought through a mobile-first strategy. Yeah. 
So it takes leadership from the top, but it also takes a culture of where complacency is the biggest enemy. A lot of people don't know when they visit Facebook headquarters and you drive in to the, in Menlo Park, you will see the like sign and that welcomes you and that makes sense. That's a key part of our culture. What most people don't know is if you look behind that like sign, it's the old Sun Microsystem sign. It has you know weeds growing behind it, but we've left it there to remind every person working at Facebook when they leave, Sun was a great company at one point. It's no longer here. We have no patience, no tolerance for complacency in our culture. You've talked about video on Facebook as an even, that it's going to be an even bigger new format. Um, You've got obviously Facebook Live, mm -hmm. which I use in a news capacity mm -hmm. now. You've got virtual reality where you've said, you know, we don't know what the business is there necessarily yet. How does this all come together? We think video is going to be more transformational than even mobile was, which is an incredible statement because you think about what transformation we had to go through back in 2012 to become yes. a mobile company. Now we're saying video is even better and bigger. And the reason why we think that it is a, is it a plethora of options. The way I like to think about video is like it's an accordion. It's everything from very short, you know, three-second videos to capture someone's attention and newsfeed, all the way to immersive 360 video experiences like the clouds over Sidra, which shows a refugee, a girl refugee in Syria, and really brings it to light the challenges of being a refugee and everything in between. Live has been a really uh, an amazing development over the last handful of months. We have learned that consumers really love the authenticity of live. They comment 10x more than on an average video when mm. someone is live. And most of the distribution can sometimes happen actually after. So if you go live and you have people simultaneously watching it, it then can be, it goes into your newsfeed environment and more and more people are able to see it afterwards. We've had the sit-in in Congress over gun control. Yeah. That, you know, members of Congress went live. The presidential debate, ABC News has been using it to go live. Howard Schultz made his endorsement of Hillary Clinton to me on Facebook Live before he did it in our sort of actual interview. And that sh shocked me, but that yes. was widely spread. It's everything from, you know, CEOs and, and power people in the media, but also everyday people that are capturing moments that might be just relevant to a small group of, of their friends mm -hmm. or to a larger audience. But it's a very powerful way to tell authentic stories. So what does that mean for cable news? What does that mean for CNN? What does that mean for all of us? Well, when I think about the way we work with the media, um, you know, you're able to use the app that we have built for you that allows you to see trending topics, to see what people are talking about. Facebook Live is going to be a part of that. So but as I mean, you think you about your Facebook sourcing. Facebook Live like replacing no, are it, live TV as we know it? We have no intention of replacing live TV as we know it. We have a, a population of 1.7 billion people and growing that love to experience this content. And frankly, they love to experience the content mm -hmm. from the people that are professional at making it. And, yeah. you know, we continue to be in a very important partner for news distribution. The numbers are huge. I mean, if you look at Facebook and Google together, according to the New York Times, clearly... Uh, they said nearly two-thirds of the $60 billion online ad market last year was face went to Facebook and Google. You know a lot about users, and that information is what advertisers want. What do we not yet know about users that advertisers are clamoring for? 
Well, what's interesting first is actually how we talk about the ad market. So in that article, it was referring to the online ad market. It's actually not what I talk about at all internally at Facebook or with our teams around the world. We look at it as the entire marketing budget, which is well over $600 billion around the globe. And when you look at that, we are barely 4% of that market. So we are a still a very small fraction of all marketing spend that occurs. There's still an enormous amount spent in traditional media, television, Mm -hmm. print, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that's how we think about the market. We define it as much larger than just the online ad marketplace. In terms of what marketers are looking for, they care about one word, growth. That's it. If you talk to a chief marketing officer, even the CEOs now or the board of directors, when they come in to see us, they have one thing on their mind, growth. How do we drive it? And from our perspective, every ad solution that we build must be driving a business outcome for our Mm -hmm. clients. Mm -hmm. We are relentlessly obsessed with that. It has to get even smarter, right? These algorithms have to be efficient. It has to be efficient and it has to drive a specific result. If I'm looking for a pair of shoes that I like or a dress that I like and I've browsed it, then it keeps showing up like everywhere is these ads on the side of my Gmail or whatever it is in my Facebook feed. Are we going to get to a point where it is smart enough to know that I've maybe bought it already or bought something else that is comparable so I wouldn't want it so they can move on? I mean, what is that information that advertisers are still clamoring to know about us? We're going to continue to have the algorithm get smarter in terms of showing the most relevant ad, which actually is best for the consumer, right? What consumers want are relevant ads. The Mm -hmm. biggest complaint we have about ads on Facebook is not that there are too many or not enough, depending on which market. It's why aren't they more relevant? People want to know that if they're going to see over 700 ads per day, not just on Facebook, but in every aspect of their life, that we're going to show them something relevant, add value to them. So that's what consumers want. And what's good for consumers is good for business. But TV doesn't have that yet. I still see ads for 60-year-old, 70-year-old people when I'm watching television. Is there ever going to be a day where it sort of crosses the medium into television? So because Facebook knows what I want and what they should advertise to me, that somehow that's going to be programmed into my smarter television to know? There will be a day, in our view, where television advertising will be more relevant. And that is going to be a very great thing, again, for both consumers and for businesses. It is a harder problem to solve because in a TV, in a living room environment, it is not clear who's watching. Right. right. We're not sure. A whole family could be watching. And what's relevant for my teenage daughters may not be at all relevant to my husband or yeah. vice versa. So it is a harder problem to solve. But generally speaking, where marketing is going mm-hmm. is going to be more of uh, targeted, more relevant, drive more value for consumers, which at, in the end of the day actually drives more value for businesses. Let's talk about uh, what is possibly been the biggest challenge of your career at Facebook thus far. Correct me if I'm wrong, but overestimating key video metrics. Um, Facebook uh, came out and acknowledged that it had overestimated inflated average viewing time for these ads um, for two years. The Wall Street Journal said by as much as 80% in some cases. You've come out, you've corrected it. You've said that Facebook should have been more forthcoming to the public, not just to your clients, but to the public. What's the lesson learned in that? We learned a lot about the video metric error. It was an error in our dashboard where there are literally dozens of metrics. And if you look at all of the metrics at Facebook, there are hundreds at any given time. 
What we learned is that when we thought we were being forthcoming, we had changed it in the dashboard. We had put a notice up in the help center and in a blog post and called clients and agencies that it wasn't enough. And I think the biggest lesson there is next time a change like that happens, that we need a better forum for being able to share updates. Metrics are going to continue to evolve. We're in a new nascent industry. Facebook Live is a brand new format, as an example. There will be new formats coming down the road. And so we're going to be continuing to evolve our metrics. And what we know is that we just have to do more education and sharing of information. So what would you have done as the face of advertising? Would you have, say, come out, done an interview, gone on television, you know, I don't know, done a Facebook Live and said, like, we messed up and here's what we do differently? I think going forward, what you're going to see us do is have a place and a forum for making sure that we can update our metrics on a more systematic basis, explain as metrics evolve. Yes, and it'll be fully accessible, and we should be talking about it more, um, just like we have done in the the last handful of weeks about Mm -hmm. the video metric error. We are a culture that prides itself on transparency. Our mission is about being more open and connected, and we want to be held fully accountable for any metric we put out there. That's how we run our business. And I tell our clients, do not give us a single dollar at all unless you believe we're driving a business result. So that's what guides us. I just think we have to do a better job at more systematically updating them and informing the broad public on how we evolve our metrics. You've now partnered increasingly with some third parties that do this, that do this kind of independent scoring, but this sort of highlights why some have said and some critics have said, you know, Facebook and your competitors, you know, shouldn't be grading their own homework. Well, we think about our partnership with a third party as critical, right? We don't want to grade our own homework. We want to partner with other companies that can verify what is happening on Facebook. And that is not a new phenomenon. That's not something we started in the last handful of weeks. This has been an ongoing journey for about 18 months Mm -hmm. where we have partnered with Nielsen and Moat and Comscore and IAS. And those four together really dominate the market. They take care of over 90% of advertisers that want third party verification. So we've been deep committed to the third-party ecosystem, and we believe in making sure that others can judge that our data is accurate, that it's verified, and that we're held accountable for the numbers that we put forth. Let's move on to parental leave. Facebook and Silicon, Silicon Valley has led the way in parental leave. Facebook offers four months for new fathers and mothers. Why do you think it is that Silicon Valley has led ahead of any other industry on parental leave? We care deeply about diversity and inclusion. It is core to our culture. If you think about the community of people we serve, 1.7 billion people, if the fabric of our employee base doesn't represent diversity, then we are not doing our consumers' service. And so we think about diversity and inclusion and look at all barriers that could prevent people from staying in the workforce, being attracted to come work at our company. And so we care deeply. We have you know, announced that men and, fe- men, men and women get paid the same in like jobs. We have equal parental leave for females and males. We have a recharge policy where after five years, people can take five, um, four weeks off. And our view is that you need to have a culture that is sustainable, that drives high performance. And so we look at that as a way to really take care of our employee base. You are a mother of twin girls, right? Yes. Obviously, having people out of work for four months at a time, new parents, uh, there is a significant cost associated with that. Clearly, Facebook has done the calculus that it is worth the cost for retention, right? I mean, walk me through the business case for giving employees that much time. 
if you think about the business case, we have about 14,000 people working at Facebook, and we're growing you know, pretty quickly each year. We want to have a culture that absolutely attracts the very best talent. As I said, people are the most important asset of a company. And so if you deeply believe that people are your most important asset, you do all this work to recruit them in, then once they get in, you need to think about creating an environment that they can thrive, that they can have it be sustainable, that they can achieve not only exceptional results at work, but also have an extraordinary life outside of work. Mm -hmm. There is a high correlation between people's overall happiness and their productivity at work. So the business case of looking at the state of other companies where employees are not as well taken care of, we don't look at things like people's mental, emotional, spiritual health, their performance is not where it could be. And so we have taken a very strong stance. Are you talking to Wall Street? I'm talking about companies that now have, Harvard Medical Study has come out that 96% of leaders have some type of mental health stress in their lives and that they are overworked. And in an age where you're on 24-7, I think we all owe it to our cultures to figure out how to create the right environment, again, not only to attract the right talent, but also to retain the very best talent. And so we care deeply. We have um, you know, wonderful benefits, but at the end of the day, if we can give people time to be at home with their child, and it's very flexible. So for example, for paternity leave, many of my colleagues have taken maybe one month and then they use their other three months throughout the first of the, the, the you know, baby's yeah. first year. Yeah. That's an incredible, important bonding time for mm-hmm. parents. And so we really feel strongly that that is something that we want to invest in. So the men are taking it? They are. Mark took it. I know. Mark took it. You have to. Leave. I mean, you have to lead by example. He totally led by example. But think about how many <clears throat> public company CEOs are doing something like that. Yeah. It's rare. And Mark deeply cares about it. And so it's not just doing it by example. He mm-hmm. fundamentally believes mm-hmm. in giving people the time. And we not only do that, but then we ask them, especially the senior folks in the company, to talk about their experiences. And so we want... To make it okay. To make it okay. Yeah. I took my recharge. In August, I took my. Did you really take it off? I did. I took off. I took off six weeks. I took four weeks, and I added two weeks of holiday. Mm. And no one in the beginning believed that I was going to do it, and I did it. And part of why I did it, of course, was to do what it's supposed to do: recharge and get ready for the next five years. But also to send a signal to every single person at Facebook, right. and frankly, outside of Facebook, <clears throat> that you can take a break. Mm-hmm. You can it's invest okay. some time with your family, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. No one's taking your job away. You'll be needed when you come back, and you will feel better when you come back. Women in tech. The first computer programmer, right, was a woman, Ada Lovelace. Only, but still, only today, 26% of all tech jobs, all tech jobs in the United States are held by women. Why is that still the case in 2016? And I feel like I've been asking this question of women in tech leadership positions for a decade. We have made very little progress in women in tech, um, and it's really a funnel problem starting at the earliest ages in education. If you look at what jobs are going to be available over the course of the next few years, the jobs that are available today, we have well over a million, almost 1.4 million jobs in computer science Mm -hmm. that are completely available that we will go unfilled. And part of it is a pipeline issue of getting enough women interested in math and science at an early stage. That is why efforts with Girls Who Code and even the efforts with Girls Inc. that are bringing in and trying to motivate young girls to stay with math and science is incredibly important. Should computer programming, coding be mandatory in school? 
I have to give credit to this idea to where it's due, which is my husband. And I am on the board of my twins' school. And he said one day, why isn't computer programming thought of as a language? If you have a foreign language requirement of Spanish or French or German or Mandarin, whatever your school offers, why are we not as a society thinking about computer science as a language requirement? Yeah. And it was a dialogue that I brought into my girls' um, school, into the board discussion, and we have made significant investments at Montclair Kimberly around computer science. But I think it needs to take us rethinking this is not just something you do in high school where you can do one computer science class, but if we really want to create a society mm -hmm. where computer science, which is going to be the cornerstone of so many jobs for the future, mm -hmm. we have to start at a young age and rethink the way we're currently bringing it to students around our, around the country. So do you think then that it, that you know every school in America, public schools, it should be mandatory for high school kids? I think computer science should be mandatory. Yeah. I do. I think it should be a requirement even if it is one semester to expose. Why do I think that? It is going to be part and parcel to almost every industry. If you think about where healthcare is going, software is going to be a huge driver of Cars. That. Cars. If you talk to um, any of the CEOs in the automotive industry, they talk of themselves as a software company. Right. Travel. Every industry is being reinvented. And if we want to create a population that is ready, not mm -hmm. only for the jobs that are open today, but going to be increasingly open, we are going to need people that have some sensitivity and knowledge and not be afraid of what computers can bring. Do you believe that it is an issue that is so important that it is an issue, it comes down to America's competitiveness? There is no question that we are going to be very uncompetitive as a society in America if we do not invest more significant resources in computer science education starting from a young age. And if you think about it, I think it's as important, by the way, as liberal arts and, and making sure that students, because if you look at the, the data, anyone that is studying humanities and liberal arts has mm -hmm. usually a much broader perspective, is excellent at problem solving and is more collaborative. Those are the, the, you know, the stereotypes. We've made a big investment in, in that type of education for over 100 years. We need to bring the math and science, and particularly computer science, mm -hmm. so that it's not relegated. We can't have 18% of our graduates focused on computer science. Yeah. It is not going to put America in its best position. 33% of Facebook's global employees are women. 27% of women hold leadership positions. You're getting there, right? I know it's a constant challenge in the industry. You've talked a lot about unconscious bias and how much that plays a role. You've also specifically said, you know, when the top of a resume has the, a name that is a female name, uh, they're less likely to get hired. Or even worse, if it has an, Amer an African American name, they're even less likely to get hired. How do you, f how do leaders fix that? There is unconscious bias in everyone. And so part of the first thing that we have done is acknowledge that everyone has some type of unconscious bias. And by talking about that and sharing what people's unconscious biases are, we've tried to take this, the, the, actually the bias of talking about it out of the system. <clears throat> Cheryl personally spearheaded the development of our unconscious bias training with Lori Goler, mm -hmm. and they've made it publicly available. And about 100% of all Facebook managers have been through the course and about 75% of the whole Facebook population. Mm -hmm. We're trying to just get people to understand that there is bias in everyone understand what yours might be, and how do you consciously think about counteracting that bias? Looking at whether it's resumes with female males, African-American sounding names, there are countless examples where bias exists throughout society. And so we're trying to hit it head on. 
our belief is that while we are you know, proud of the fact that we're getting there, and clearly we have so many efforts to spearhead how we think about diversity and inclusion in our employee base, we won't be there until 50% of the women are in leadership roles and, and 50% of our entire workforce is mm-hmm. in, in, it has the ability to get to a leadership role if they're a female. So I'm sure you read the Wall Street Journal op-ed by John Greathouse. Okay. So his argument in the op-ed was that in order to avoid this unconscious bias, you women in tech and trying to raise money for your startup shouldn't use your name. You should create an online presence that obscures your gender and you should use your initials. Well, the backlash was huge and he even wrote a retraction calling it dreadful. But what does it tell us about where we stand in 2016? Well, you can go back to the Harvard Business School case study um, example where you had Heidi and Howard. And you had 80 students study the same company. In one case study, the protagonist was Howard. And the class thought Howard was, they used words, strong leader, exceptional. All these other dynamics happened. It wasn't Howard's fault. They swapped Howard's name for Heidi and another 80 students at Harvard. And the words used about Heidi were terrible. Same facts, same set of facts. They just swapped Howard for Heidi. You can look at orchestras and the fact that blind orchestra additions give women much higher likelihood of getting that that job. There is bias throughout our entire society. One of the biggest things we can do is actually change the way women are portrayed in marketing and media. If you think about how many marketing messages are out there on a given day, and if we were to change the way women were portrayed, it's one of the biggest levers we have and one we're deeply passionate about. So if you look at Procter & Gamble, always like a girl campaign. Mm -hmm. It was the number one video viewed for Procter & Gamble, well over 48 million video views, and really started a dialogue about what does it mean to be a girl? My favorite example is Ariel in India, which is another Procter & Gamble product, where in India, the stereotype is that the women do all of the house chores, even if they want to work outside of the house. This was a hard-hitting video about a father watching a daughter. Oh, I watched it. It was in- remarkable. It, it makes me cry. I've seen it so many times. It's remarkable. But well over a million point seven people, men in India, really said that they were going to step up and start to do more household chores. The You can tell so many powerful stories through film. And I think as a marketing, a media, a Hollywood responsibility, we have to start changing the way the perceptions are being created from when children are really young. Barbie was another great, um, you know, um, They're campaign. Changing now. Totally. I mean, their their whole notion was letting girls be who they want to be, but not may, maybe in a Barbie wedding dress, but being in Barbie with a lab coat. We need to show from the earliest ages that these gender stereotypes are not okay. And the fact is that we have them. We have them as parents. Do you know that moms overestimate their crawling ability of sons versus their daughters? <sighs> So it's innate totally in our culture. Correct. We don't even know what's happening, which is why it's unconscious bias. You're one of the highest ranking people at Facebook. Um, there are a number of female leaders, Cheryl, you, Lori, at Facebook. Have you faced a, a more difficult time, do you believe, in your career because you're a woman in power? Have you faced sexism in the workplace? Have you faced an uneven playing field? I am very fortunate to work at a company that's led by Mark and Cheryl, where I have felt nothing but opportunity. And in many ways, I think it's been advantageous to be a woman um, in tech because there are few and far between. 
And I think that women have very important skills to bring to this new age of how companies need to operate. Women are empathetic, they're more collaborative, and I have found it to be a real advantage. Um, certainly, if I look back at my 20 plus years of career, there have been times where being a woman has been very difficult. I am still often the only woman in many meetings. I get on many meetings. I get online to get to the airport and I happen to have pretty high status on United because I fly them all the time. But if I'm with my husband, they automatically assume he is the he is the frequent flyer and they'll call him up and he's there. He's like, no, it's it's my wife. And so there's stereotypes every single day. But what I'm really most proud of is watching my two daughters grow up and see it through the lens of their eyes, which is that you know, they really believe anything is possible and they both have big dreams. And that's at the end of the day, what I need to give to them is a sense that anything is possible. So maybe when they're the frequent flyers, they'll get called up. Exactly. Now. Husband and, we, we will and they love correcting. Positive. They love correcting the flight yeah. attendants when that happens. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Poppy. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.